Now, let's turn our hearts and our attentions. We continue to worship and adore Christ and adore God by turning our hearts to how he's spoken to us in his infallible and errant word. And this morning, it's from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. So let's turn our hearts to the word of God. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word. And now we are asking for you to pour out your spirit to be our counselor, our teacher, our helper, to illuminate our hearts, to see your glory, the excellence of Jesus, the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through your word. So, Lord, we do pray that you would have your way with us as you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Help us to receive it, seeing the excellencies of it, May faith arise in our hearts that we embrace your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest blessings I have right now in my life is my relationship with Joel, especially as he gets older, 26 years old, and we talk almost on a daily basis. Uh, it's a thrill for me that having an adult son, I can't, sometimes I wonder and I can't believe he actually wants to talk to his old man, and I consider it a tremendous blessing. It lets me know what's going on in his life, and he even listens when I try to impart maybe a little bit this much wisdom, this much of what I try to impart in terms of worldview, values, that kind of stuff. Makes me think back of my own childhood growing up. I was blessed to have a good father who I knew had my welfare in mind, cared for me, loved me, was committed to me, and would always be wanting to share with me. Jeff, he'd say, Jeff, and I knew he was serious when it was one of these, Jeff, and then I knew, pay attention. And he'd go, I want you to do better than I did. I want you to have more opportunities than I did. And what was he doing? He was being a father, imparting to his son, passing on the wisdom, the worldview, the values that he held. Why? Because he wanted me to embrace them. He wanted me to accept them. He didn't want me just to have the information. He wanted it to actually impact my life. In Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, the passage we've looked at for the last couple weeks, we had what we called the preamble to the book of Proverbs. Ray Ortland in his commentary calls it the mini introduction. And then in the structure of the book of Proverbs, beginning at chapter 1, verse 8, and going all the way through the end of chapter 9, is the prologue. The actual Proverbs, these sayings, these aphorisms, these statements don't begin till chapter chapter 10. And Ray Ortland calls that basically 1-8 till the end of chapter 9, he calls it the mega 
introduction. So you got a mini introduction and a mega. How's that for a sophisticated outline in the book of Proverbs? We can remember mini and mega, right? Okay. Bruce Walke says, he says, here's what's going on. He says, the form of the prologue, this part from 1.8 all the way through chapter 9, is a series of 10 poems put into the mouth of the father and addressed to his son, imparting the worldview, the values, the faith of the covenant people, along with two extended addresses by wisdom, which is a personification of the father's teaching intended to motivate youths to embrace wisdom over the lures and the enticements of sex, money, violence, and greed. Psychologists and counselors today tell us that adolescence is a time for youths to search and find their own personal identity. I actually think if you look at society today, I think this time of seeking, this time of kind of discovering your identity, your worldview, your va settling into who you are as a person actually goes beyond, I think, the adolescent teenage years, and it goes into what sociologists call the millennial generation into their 20s. It is a time for choosing and embracing one's worldview and values. These chapters that we're introducing today and going to be looking at over the next several months, this mega introduction that Dr. Orland calls it, continually present to us. So here's the call. They're going to present two conflicting worldviews, two sets of values, two ways, two paths, two voices, if you would, where each is making their appeal. Wisdom versus folly, good versus evil, life versus death, and one must choose which they are going to embrace. In other words, in all of these chapters, you've got these two sets of values, two sets of worldviews, two paths, two ways, and here's the question. And even though in the text, here it is in the original, it's my son, so it's a father, and there's, so there's application for parenting, but if anyone, let's broaden the application. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and you're in Christ, who is your heavenly father? So God's our father, and we're all his children, and he's speaking to his children, his covenant family, and the implied question to all of us is who will you listen to? Which way, which sets of values, which worldview, which path will you listen to? Dr. Walke says these two competing views are each represented, represented by two voices. On behalf of wisdom's worldview, the Father addresses the Son, and God, of course, addresses us in the home and also in the literary figure wisdom as he addresses the gullible at the city gate. On behalf of folly, you have wicked, money, wicked men offering fast money and the woman adulteress offering casual sex. In pitched battle, Dr. Walke says, these combatants, through their speeches more than anything else, compete for the souls of youth. He writes, the stakes are high, they're life and death. The father's way leads to life, but the way of evil men to death. The house of the foolish woman is the entrance chamber to death. Wisdom's house is the place of life. Who are you listening to today? We've said it many times, you are never neutral. You are always moving. You're always listening to a word, either God's word or somebody else's or your own. Every day, you must choose and you must, 
What word will I embrace? What message will I live out of? Ray Ortland says, why do we study the book of Proverbs? He says, is any of us really sitting here? We know the Ten Commandments. Is any of us really sitting here and saying, hmm, I think I'll murder somebody today. Yeah, that's what I'll do. He goes, no, it's much more subtle than that. He says, even at this moment, this moment that you and I are sitting in this sanctuary right now, we are all creating social dynamics, both subtle and powerful. And those dynamics are either life depleting or life enriching. What makes the difference is the wisdom of our life together as the church of Christ. Wisdom is calling out. In the words of a father, parents to their children this morning, God the Father speaking to us. And we hear two things in this particular text as we look at verses 8 to 19. And again, the application, if you're taking notes, this is what you should be writing. See, I'm going to help you. Who will I listen to? Wisdom tells us of her beauty, and wisdom gives us a warning. This text, we have wisdom's beauty, and we have wisdom's warning. Look with me at verses 8 and 9, and let's, let's be drawn by the beauty of wisdom. Verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they, referring to the wisdom, the teaching, the instruction, are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Okay? A little bit of teaching now. The structure of this is very simple. Verse 8 gives us the teaching and instruction. Verse 9 is the reason, the basis for that teaching and instruction. So here's the teaching, here's the why, here's the basis. And let's remember our Hebrew poetry, because Proverbs is a poem, it's poetry, and it's always based on Hebrew parallelism, which is going to be two parallel lines, the A line and the B line. And the B line will always amplify or expand the meaning of the A line. So look with me at the text, verse 8. Here's the A line. Hear, my son, your father's instruction which then is expanded and amplified in the beeline, forsake not your mother's teaching. In other words, the father speaking to his son is saying, here's my teaching, and not only hear it, don't forsake it, which means what? Internalize it, experience it. It's almost like the book of James. Don't just be a mere hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. If you listen to the word and only take it in and say, hmm, that's good, I agree with that. I believe in that. And you don't do it, friends, you haven't heard it. Hearing is for doing. And the father's giving that instruction when he says, listen, my son, to the instruction and forsake not. Put it into practice. Then he gives the reason in verse 9. And again, two parallel lines. The A line is they, this wisdom teaching, are a graceful garland for your head. And we'll have to define what that means in just a second. And B, they are pendants, beautiful jewelry, like you are an Olympic champion receiving your gold medal. They are pendants for your neck. In other words, here's the main message. Listen to it before I kind of go through the parts. Listen to the whole. Wisdom makes you attractive. True biblical wisdom is never ugly. True biblical wisdom is always winsome and attractive, and it draws. 
It makes you beautiful. This is why we've said Proverbs and human flourishing. God cares enough about you. What is he doing? He has redeemed you, and he's restoring the image of God in you. And the image of God is beautiful. The image of God, as we've seen, that ideal image bearer is Jesus Christ. And do you not think Jesus Christ is beautiful? He's not just powerful and awesome and majestic. He's all of that. But did you ever think, did you, do you really think he walked in ugliness as he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? He walked in beauty. Every confrontation, every rebuke, every teaching, every healing, every act of compassion, every act of mercy, everything he did was beautiful. And God is restoring you into that image. Now, what do these metaphors mean? A graceful garland and pendants. The items signified victory over one's enemies, vindication, validation, along with prestige and status. They meant honor and dignity. A garland was the victor's wreath that they would wear. So Proverbs 4.9 says, She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And the pendant, of course, was the chain around your neck. As I mentioned, it's like the Olympic medal put around someone after they win the gold, silver, or bronze medal. And again, I want to draw you into worship. Think about this for a second. Isn't the gospel amazing? What is God wanting to do? He's wanting to put his glory upon you. Nothing less than his glory. He wants to stamp on his covenant people. As Andrew prayed earlier, praise God. God initiates and remembers his covenant. And part of his remembering is he's saying, it's not enough to just save you from wrath. I'm stamping my beauty, my glory upon you. And how we experience that as new covenant children, what is the embodiment of wisdom? It's Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 13? Clothe yourselves with Christ. Think about how to put on Christ. When you put on Christ, you're putting on this wisdom. You're putting on this beauty. You're putting on this glory that God wants to stamp upon you. And think about how this is described in the Old Covenant. Isaiah 61 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture because it's giving us a prophecy of the Messiah's program. And I love what it says in verse 3 of Isaiah 61, right after he's gone, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, the spirit to preach good news to the poor, to comfort all who mourn, to bind up the brokenhearted. And then it says, to give them. And the them is God's covenant people. In the New Testament, that's us. Listen to this. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Do you hear what's being offered here in Proverbs? Hear my son, your father's teaching. Forsake not your mother's instruction. This teaching, this instruction of wisdom, it is like a beautiful garland for your a graceful garland, and it's a beautiful pendant for your neck. It's a beautiful headdress. It is the glory of God upon you. It's beauty instead of ashes. It's beauty in the broken places of life. That as we learn, this is what sanctification is, my friends. As we learn to put on Christ, we are becoming more and more attractive, more and more beautiful. Now, before I move on 
to the next point, I want to make a couple of quick applications from this. I want to apply this to a couple areas of our life and ministry. First, I want you to think for a second how the Father motivates the Son here. And like I said, widen the application. Parents are an authority over the children. Think about how then, how we shepherd others, how we lead those we're influencing, how we as elders and pastor, we teach, how we lead those we're deciding. And any, how do we do this? I want you to notice how, what is the means of motivation is that he begins with the positive, not the negative. He'll get to accountability, consequences. Believe me, verses 10 to 19 is very blunt realism, but that's not where he begins. He doesn't shy away from the harsh realities of life. But the motivation is not, son, buck up, listen up. You better listen to me, I'm coming after you, boy. He starts with, he says, the glory of God, this beauty, is a graceful garland for your head. What does he begin? He begins with validation, vindication, honor, dignity. Think about the picture of salvation we have in the New Testament. You want a parable of it? The parable of the prodigal son coming home. And what happens with the prodigal son when he comes home? And of course, what does the father say to the elder brother? He was lost and he's found. He was dead, he's alive again. And what does he do? He throws him a party. He embraces him. He weeps over him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He kills the fattened calf. He puts a ring on his finger, sandals, symbols of validation, vindication, value, worth, meaning. He builds him up, and then out of that, he says, there's responsibility. But the methodology is very important. He goes from the dignity to the responsibility. He doesn't start with, you better work hard. And if you work hard, maybe you'll be okay. He starts with, look at who you are. He doesn't say that leads you to do whatever you want. It's not easy believism. But look at the dignity and the value and the worth. He doesn't motivate from fear, I'll get you, or pride, what will others think about you? He motivates from dignity. This teaching is a graceful garland, a beautiful headdress, pendants, for your neck. Friends, do you see the glory of God that God through Jesus Christ has placed upon you and wants you to live out of that? And second, I want you to think about this in light of the biblical story and the mission of the church. Remember I said this is the father passing on his worldview, his values to his son. What was the worldview of Israel? Came out of Genesis chapter 12. And Exodus chapter 19, when God called Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation, the father of a great nation. You will be blessed, and in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, you and your people, the covenant people, are my instrument for blessing the world. That's where we get the saying, Israel and the church as the new covenant Israel is meant to be a light for the nations. Now, I want you to think about something. How does, so we're to be the covenant people are to be a light for the nations, to be by their attractive, beautiful holiness and lifestyle, make the message credible. How does the typical church in America grow today? How does the contemporary church typically grow today? Unfortunately, we grow by, I think the process, some call it sheep sorting. 
I'll trade you three Episcopalians for a Methodist and 500,000 to be thrown in later. It's kind of like general managers doing a deal, right? I'll give you an Anglican, four Baptists, and a Reformed Presbyterian for your, you know, and we sort them out. And yet it, it amazes me that when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 19, that he says, I have come to seek and save, not the Methodists, not the Presbyterians, not the, I have come to seek and save the lost. I've come to seek and save those who are on the outside and bring them in. I've come to seek and save those who are alienated. Think about what the word lost means. Those who don't have the truth. Those who don't have hope. Those who don't have help. Those who are in broken places. And by the beauty and the attractiveness and the holiness of the wisdom that is the Jesus Christ and he's imparted and given to his people. I want to draw you in and attract you to the church. I want to graft and graft you into the church. Are we, by our lifestyle, making the message that we teach credible? As we always learn, when I first came up in ministry, and I was methodology-wise here, I was taught through young life, and the phrase we always had in terms of incarnational ministry is you must earn the right to be heard. Os Guinness, in his book called it's called Fool's Talk, all about Christian persuasion. He mentions in it, we've got to quit assuming that people want to hear our message. And by our lifestyle, our holiness, yes, we need to speak the message, but we need to by our beauty, the graceful garland, the beautiful headdress, the pendants. That's an Old Testament way of saying beauty and glory that God through Christ has put upon us we need to make that message credible so that people hear. Yes, the message has to be spoken, but the message has to be incarnated first so that people want to hear us. That's the first point. Wisdom's beauty. Do you even have a desire to make wisdom beautiful? To listen to the beauty of it and have it draw? Do we want to see the world drawn by the beauty of the church. I truthfully believe with 100% every fiber of my being that the church is the answer for people today. And so it saddens me when we don't make that message credible by how we live. Who are you listening to? Second, wisdom's warning. Picking up at verse 10, and listen to this. He goes on, he says, my son, and listen to this first warning. He says, if sinners entice you, do not consent. That word entice is really interesting because, again, like I said earlier, you know, how often do we go out? Are sinners really out there and say, hey, I'm having plans to do murder later. Would you join me? I'm running towards it. Doesn't seem to work that way. Remember I said this is two ways, two values, two paths, but we hang out with people and we talk to people and a group of people might be gossiping about somebody else, and it gets easy to compromise and join in, doesn't it? It's enticing. It lures. It just kind of draws us in. Do you hear? This is wisdom's warning. The father is speaking to his son. Remember verse, my son, hear my instruction. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Pay attention. If sinners entice you, draw you in, do not consent, which means be on your guard always. Not just sometimes. Be on your guard against drifting, compromise, enticement. If they say, come with us, 
let us lie and wait for blood. In other words, whether it's direct or not, they're wanting to be life-depleting, not life-enriching. That's why Ray Ortland's quote, where we talked about the social dynamics are at work within us all the time. By our relating, are we being life-enriching or life-depleting? Are we giving life or are we taking life away? If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, in other words, we're going to suck the life out of people. We're taking life away by how we relate. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, hell itself, let us swallow them alive. Listen to what he says. He says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. Whose voice will you listen to? Do you heed the warning? And then he says, their own, he talks about these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. They're self-destructive. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust grain. It takes away the life of its possessors. In other words, it promises life, but it can't come through. It can't fulfill. I want you to notice something here, a couple of different things. Ray Ortland again, he says, we all long for community. And it's right to long for community. You were built for community. But he says there is a kind of community to which we should never want to belong. He says, rather, let's consider God's alternative, a safe community freely open to all through the grace of our violently crucified Christ. Bruce Waltke again points out, he says, every one of these enticements of the wicked are all counterfeits of the blessings of the wise. Every one of this are saying, you want community, and we're going, yes, yes, and they're offering you a counterfeit to biblical wisdom. So part of the invitation of who will you listen to is an offer of which community will you belong to? Which community will you be a part of? The community of the wicked might look enticing. It might offer instant gratification. It may offer great satisfaction. It may offer great adventure, but it's ultimately self-defeating and self-destroying. That's why verse 19 sums it up so well when it says, such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The community lies in wait for its own blood. But friends, it's not so with the gospel. It is not so with Christ. Again, as Dr. Ortland says, he says, remember the gospel which says that Jesus is not lying in wait for your blood because he gave his own blood. In him, Paul writes to the Ephesians, we have redemption through his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We have been made a part of the community of the Trinity and the community of Christ by God through Christ's self-giving of his own blood rather than lying in wait to devour you, to destroy you, to amb ambush you. Jesus laid down his life sacrificed for you. And Tim Keller says the actual difficulty with community is a problem that is much older 
than our lives, our world, our society, much older than even when the book of Proverbs was written. It goes all the way back to that original couple in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. It originates with them when, what did they do? And remember the message, who will you listen to? They, before the fall, were given a choice. Who will you listen to, the word of God or the word of the serpent? The temptation was to listen to an alternative message, to listen to an alternative word. And they lost community when they pulled away from the embrace of God, when they pulled away from the message of God, from God's word being authoritative, life-giving, life-shaping, life-defining. They listened to the wrong voice. And what happened? Community disintegrated. When we pull away from listening to what God has to say and we invest ourselves in the word of another, we hide, we isolate, we blame shift. We're afraid of being vulnerable. We're afraid of betrayal. Our lives are characterized by alienation, loneliness, fear, fear of rejection, fear of vulnerability. We basically say, if I lay down my life for you, if I actually lay down, and I actually do things like listen, if I actually seek to understand you rather than making sure you understand me, will I be hurt? Will I be burnt out? Will I be rejected? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the shalom makers. He doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. Adam and Eve pulled away from the authoritative voice, the message of God, and they became peacekeepers. And you want to know whose peace they were trying to keep? Their own. Community is lost when we live for our own safety. And instead of becoming shalom makers, where we're making peace with others, offering beauty in the broken places of life, we become peacekeepers, protecting ourselves. Always being right, being defensive, being afraid of vulnerability. The creator of community is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what is the cross? It is God ultimately becoming vulnerable. The creator of heaven and earth became vulnerable so that we could come in. And community explodes when God draws near. The reason community so infrequently happens is we center our lives on the wrong message, the wrong word, the wrong voice. Who will you listen to and who are you listening to every day? Every, this is a question, by the way, you have to answer every day of your life. What message, what voice will you listen to? There's only one that's the power of God, and that's called the gospel. Every other competing voice from within you, from the world, from others, there's only one message that's the power of God exploding and released into your life, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who will you listen to is actually a question for every moment we live in. Let's pray. Lord, may we listen to your message. May we pay attention to that all the time. We need to come together to hear the right word and refocus our lives around the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So teach us to do this, Lord, we pray. The gospel that brings freedom, the gospel that changes us, that restores us, that gives us hope, the gospel that creates community and life. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.